Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I will give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Kathy Izzard. She supported her husband through a rare disease diagnosis. She leads women's retreats, and she has written three books. And I've spent the last bit of time here getting to know her, and she's been getting to know me. So it's been great to connect with Kathy today. So thank you so much, Kathy. Why don't you go ahead and tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? Thanks, Sarah. Great to talk to you. Um, yes, as you mentioned, I, part of my story is that I um, wrote a book called The Last Ordinary Hour, Living Life Now That Nothing Will Ever Be the Same. And that was my second book. It was about how in 2013, my husband, who was probably one of the healthiest people I knew and ate ridiculously healthy and always worked out at the gym, um, we were out of town and he surprisingly um, had a heart attack and we were rushed by ambulance to a medical center and um, his life was saved that day. We've been told since that time that that was truly a miracle that, um, you know, he probably should have died. Um, and we found out that it wasn't heart disease that caused the heart attack that day. It was rare disease. And his disease is called spontaneous coronary artery dissection. And we found out that it's not just the cardiac arteries where something could happen, but um, he was born with an all over body weakness. So his um, carotid arteries, his iliac, um, femoral, any artery in his body can split at any time, causing another heart attack, aneurysm, or stroke. And the hardest thing to digest with all that was to understand that there's so little research about it because it was a rare disease that there was no pill that he could take. There was no diet he could follow. There was no test that would predict it. And we were thrust into this life of radical uncertainty. And that's what I ended up um, writing the book about. He he is still with us today as we um, record this. He, my, he is still um, alive. We've been through a lot of other procedures and things. And I, I think in our last 10 years, this decade of living with this rare disease, we, we have come to know so many other people who are facing rare disease, um, diagnosis they weren't expecting, um, uh, you know, early death, you know, many, many things. And really, I think what you come to understand is that it, it happens to all of us, whether it's a, a diagnosis or a death or even a divorce that you weren't expecting. There's something that knocks us off our feet when we think we're so sure and we think we can control things and we can plan. And how do you live life knowing that that is not the certainty? It's exactly the opposite. So that that was what that um, book came to be about in kind of the last decade of our lives. And so that's not your first book. So what, is, what was your first book about in, in the book since then? <laughs> Yeah. So um, it was not my first book. And frankly, I was never planning to publish that book. And if you know my husband, you would absolutely believe I was never going to publish that book. Um, I started um, writing uh, in 2010. I made a New Year's Eve promise to myself that I was going to write something longer than an email. I had not written since college, but I had a story that I wanted to tell. And that story really came out of... Um, Four years earlier, I was a mom. I was a volunteer at a soup kitchen and we have four daughters and I had big dreams for them. I'd kind of forgotten what my own were. I was a graphic designer. I had my own business, um, but I kind of knew that that wasn't the life that I wanted to be leading, that there was something else that I was meant to be doing. 
And I ended up um, quitting my job, closing my graphic design firm and going to work for our local soup kitchen, which at that time just had day services. There was no housing component. And uh, very unexpectedly, I became the director of a program called Homeless to Homes. And we were going to try a housing first philosophy, which um, offers chronically homeless men and women a chance to move directly off the street into home. And even though I was completely unqualified to do this, I did have a heart and a passion for it. And no one else seemed to be doing this job or wanting this job. So I took this job and we started out thinking that we were going to house just a, a pilot group, 13 people, move them directly from street to home. And what we quickly found out was this idea of housing first, when you um, offer someone a home and offer the support services that go with it. Um, amazing transformations happen. And we we realize this is is what people experiencing homeless need. Soup is nice, day services are nice, but what ends homelessness? A home. And so all of a sudden, not only was I director of a program that I actually really had no idea what I was doing, I became um, chair of a um, capital campaign to raise $10 million. We were gonna build our own building and an apartment building for chronically homeless. We did end up um, doing that. It was kind of uh, very unlikely because we started our capital campaign in 2008, which was the height of the recession. You know, everyone had lost jobs, lost money. The, the idea that we would raise $10 million for, you know, something was kind of a Don Quixote hype project. It looked kind of hopeless from the start, but that's why I wanted to write the book because it was so miraculous that we would raise money for you know, an unlikely cause in a town that was really everyone had lost their bank jobs and the stocks had crashed. Um, but, but we did, and I was such a feel good story. I really did not want all of the pieces of that, of what happened and how this town did it in Charlotte, North Carolina. I didn't want that to be lost. So I started trying to write this book and that became the hundred story home, uh, a memoir of finding faith in ourselves and something bigger. So that, that was my first book and my first foray into writing. And um, from that book, I ended up doing a children's book that went with it called A Good Night for Mr. Coleman. And that teaches kids the idea of um, one person can make a difference to do good and also kind of explaining this very complex idea of homelessness. So those two went together. Um, Charlie's heart attack happened kind of in the middle of all that. So while I was going around writing and speaking about homelessness and doing good, I was not talking about what was happening in our home, which was this very unsettling rare disease where I was waiting to become a widow. Um, and so I, I did eventually get the courage, um, to, to publish that book, um, and tell kind of our own personal story. So now I do both. I, I go around and I talk. Um, around homelessness and how one person can make a difference. Um, but I also talk um, sometimes at a medical conference or somewhere else with its, you know, more rare disease related. Um, and that has, that has all morphed into a retreat and workshop um, business with, that I um, lead called Women, Faith and Story. And I think all of that starts 15 years ago where I was looking for what I meant to do in my life. And I really love helping women in particularly find faith in their story, whether that is actual chapters. I book coach and help people write books. 
or whether whether it's metaphorical next chapters, whether someone's meant to do something as unlikely as building an apartment building for for chronically homeless men and women, or whether it's something else. Um, I do think that each of us um, probably has something that we're we're meant to do, whether it's from random acts of kindness to very large things like building buildings. And I try to help and encourage people find their passion and calling. It sounds like it. And there's lots of different uh, ways we can continue this conversation. But I want to start kind of with this home first look at homelessness. Can you talk a little bit, you know, you needed to raise the $10 million, you you built a building, kind of what that means and what supports that are in place when you get people off the streets? Yeah, that's a great question, Sarah, because um, that's the whole idea of housing first. It's not just give someone a home, hand them a key and say, Ooh, good luck. Well done. You know, hope, hope, <laughs> hope that works out for you. Um, because as we're saying, we were housing people who were chronically homeless. And that means people who'd been on the streets at least a year, but really people we were working with had been homeless five, 10, even 20 years. And that's not because they were lazy or they just didn't try. Most people hundred percent have some disability, whether it's mental physical, intellectual, something that had kept them unsuccessful in housing. So the idea of housing first is you not only um, give someone a home, apartment, access to a place to live, you also um, link them with the case management, the support services that will ultimately make them successful. So even in our pilot program, I was the director of the program, but we had one case manager who worked for the 13 individuals, you know, and that what people needed was everything from, you know, dental care. We had a 58-year-old woman who'd never seen a dentist in her entire life. We had people who got eyeglasses for the first time and hadn't been able to see for years and didn't even know they, they had eye issues. It was connecting people to addiction services, you know, sobriety and treatment, connecting people to getting their GEDs and their high school degrees. Um, And you really do see this idea of housing first, which we're not the first ones to do it in Charlotte. We were modeling it off of other cities, Um, New York, Seattle, had all done programs like this. And it was um, when we were starting it in 2007, um, other cities had been doing it for a decade. It just wasn't here. But you really do see that, you know, homeless services, unfortunately, a lot of times look like, well, as soon as you get clean and sober, or as soon as you, you know, go through all these hoops, then we can help you find a place to live. And Housing First kind of says 100% the opposite. They say, just by virtue of the fact that you're a human being, you deserve to be housed. Let's start there and let's give you the supports you need. Because it's very difficult if you're someone who's sleeping under a bridge and you're not getting um, good medical or psychiatric care, and you're supposed to remember to show up at two o'clock on a Tuesday for an appointment, it's a lot of it's really unattainable because the you are in survival mode and it is so difficult living on the streets um, that you really shifting the paradigm completely and saying, let's move you inside, let's get you sleeping, let's get you services, and and then let's figure out what you need and how to make you successful just makes so much more sense. Um, So I I really think cities across the country have mostly all flipped to this model. Um, It is kind of the standard of care now in homeless services. And for the naysayers out there that might be out there, does it? And there are. Yeah. Yeah. I I get it. Like, no, I, I, I was one of those people. I was very unlikely to become a crusader for homelessness because I really, I'd served soup kitchen, served in the soup kitchen for probably 15 years before I did this. And I really, 
I did it be, uh, because I it felt good to do something to to try to help. But I truly believed that homelessness was an unsolvable problem, and so that I think that's why I didn't try to do something sooner. Um, because it just felt so big, so unwieldy. How could you help? What could one person do? Um, so I understand the naysayers. So what what would they be saying in this particular circumstance? Yeah. Well, I so I think, you know, I, this is not my view. I, you know, I love what you're saying here about housing first. Um, do people then find success? You give them the home, you give them the resources to be successful. Do they once you know, they may not be needing those resources as much as they like kind of do start to succeed. Yes. Do they continue to succeed without the resources or do they end up back homeless? No, I think like the building that we built is called um, More Place and um, we have a 96% um, housing retention rate in that property. We've gone on to do other um, properties. We've renovated apartments. We've um, trans. um formed a old hotel motel into housing. Um, over the last few years, we've raised millions of dollars and kind of changed the paradigm in Charlotte and the way things are done through an organization called Roof Above. Um, and you can see kind of all the work that, that's happening there. But yes, for the most part, um, it you know, people's lives are complicated and every case is different on what someone needs. And there are layers of trauma to work through in, in someone's life. So is it easy and straightforward? No. And also, what is the defini definition of success? Like our definition of success is, is to keep someone housed um, until the end of their, their life. We're doing a lot of end of life care now, you know, 15 years later. Um, people who would have died on the streets much sooner now are passing away from normal in, end of life um, with complicated health situations. But I think most people think, oh, well, do you get them up and out and then they get jobs and they go on and and they, you know, buy their own homes. That's not really the population that we're working with. When I say chronically homeless, remember, though, that was the definition, someone who has mental, physical, intellectual disabilities. So some of the people that we housed, you know, had very low IQs, like a third grade IQ, and had just been on the streets because they were abandoned by their own families or couldn't work. So everyone that we work with, the really what we're trying to do, get them connected to services, get them housed, and probably get them connected with um, a federal disability check, which in the state of North Carolina is about $783 a month. They pay a third of that um, for their their housing. So they pay, you know, the rent and the rest they live on. So if you think um, that lives a little less than $500 to live on every month, um, most people are, are staying in more place or some of our housing because that is the end goal because they're, they're disabled. Um, some of them do have side work that they can do, but if you get a full-time job, you will lose that disability income and you're back to square one again. So we are, we are working with the population that our, our goal is to keep them healthier, keep them housed and keep them dignified quality of life. Um, so it's probably a different standard of, of success. Um, but, you know, just to watch someone who was sleeping on the streets and, you know, close to death to come in and, and thrive in a way that you, you see them participating in our services or helping their neighbor or, or cooking dinner and taking it down the hall to someone. I mean, that's a pretty, pretty high 
good success for, for us and the work that we're doing. Definitely. Now, are you still a director there or how are you still involved? No, I am. I am now um, stepped back. I'm on the um, advisory board and I work with with Roof Above. Um, I also worked um, to help um, develop something called Hopeway, which is a mental health services um, organization in town. We didn't have a residential mental health treatment program, so we worked to develop that. And that isn't necessarily um, at all for people who are street homeless. That is really kind of working the way up um, people who had anxiety, depression, bipolar, schizophrenia um, at any income level, um, you know, our fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers. And so I'm I'm very involved with that. I'm on the advisory board for that. And then I I write books, I speak and, and I teach as well. So are you currently working on a new book? Well, I am actually. Um, I just sold a new book. Um, it will come out um, through Baker Books next year. And that book is called um, Trust the Whisper. And it really is a continuation of the 100-story home. I feel like I had this strange whisper to quit my job and build this housing for the homeless. I can't explain it at the time. I, I It was inconvenient. It was unexpected. It was uncomfortable. But, but the whisper to do it was insistent. And so I either had to um, pretend I'd never heard it or get busy working on it. So I did. I, I quit and I got busy working on it. And throughout my the last 10 years, I feel like there have been these whispers to help and do things. Hopeway, you know, the mental health treatment was one. Write, write each of these books was another one. And so along the way, I've met so many people who I, I know that I'm not the only one getting whispers, right? I think our lives, our souls are, are talking to us all the time and maybe trying to steer us into that one thing that we were meant to do. So Trust the Whisper, the subtitle is Extraordinary Stories of Ordinary Grace. And it's um, 24 stories of people who, like me, kind of felt a little crazy that they heard a whisper to do something. Um, it felt inconvenient and uncomfortable and unexpected, and they felt completely unqualified to do whatever it was, um, yet they listened. And so that book is about um, not only what happened in those individual instances, but to me, the really extraordinary thing that I started to realize as an author, as an interviewer, the story started interconnecting. People who were strangers and didn't know each other, then their stories, their whispers started connecting in really remarkable ways. And that is why I wanted to write that book. Because again, I felt I was holding these stories that were so um, remarkable and, and kind of evidence of this big weave, this divine grace in the world um, that we don't talk about a lot. And I wanted to capture those and put those down. So that is the, the next book that's coming in 2024. Well, that's exciting. Now, yes. when you had this kind of like first whisper and did take the leap to quit your job, start something new. Yes. It was then shortly after that your husband had this heart attack. So what were those years kind of like where, you know, you left stable income and then he had to start going through various tests and not really knowing what the future was going to look like? Yeah, so I guess the timeline on it when I first started hearing that whisper was 2007 um, to 2008. Um, I was raising money and building the building between 2008 and 2012. We just opened the doors and we're having this, yay, we did it, you know, moment. And I was 
looking to see what might be next in my life. And that's when Charlie had his heart attack was in 2013. So between 13 and 16, I was still trying to, to work on more plays to, you know, be involved with this thing that we said was going to work. Right. (laughs) Okay. We're going to build this building and we're going to have 120 people, you know, formerly homeless. And I, we promise it's going to be work, you know, it's going to work and be great for the city. Yet at the same time in my own life, I was thinking, oh my gosh, am I going to be a widow? You know? Um, so I think 13 to 16 were, were pretty rough years, honestly. Um, and I think that's why I started writing what became the last ordinary hour because I, I didn't know what I was going to do. It was really uncertain. And, um, if I'm honest, I think I was kind of angry at God to tell you the truth. Like I, um, the last, the hundred story home talks about how I wasn't even sure I believed in God or anything bigger yet. This miraculous building stands to me as kind of a, a testament of what happens when people come together. And I was thinking, wow, I did that. And I did all this work. And now my husband almost dies. Like, what's up with that? Like, I feel like I, I did good. Shouldn't we get a hall pass and, and have an easier life? Um, so that's kind of what the hundred, the uh, last ordinary hour was, is, is kind of working through what is that. And, and, um, I, I have come to believe of, that I, I need something bigger in my life. I need to believe in a higher power and something honestly, sometimes to get through the day, because when things are so uncertain, um, it has helped me. And, in writing that book, I read hundreds of other people's books. And in there, I quote probably 35 theologians, poets, other people asking the bigger questions of life and grief and death. And what does this mean? And why are we here? And why are we struggling? And all of, all of those things. So I think those years, 13 to 16 were pretty rough. And then the writing really helped me kind of find peace with it all of instead of whoa me, why me? It was like, why not us? Of course it's us. It, it, it happens to everyone. It's not, it's not if it's something's going to happen in our life, it's when. And, um, I had grown up in a home with a mother who was bipolar. So I think I maybe had my toughest battles already. Right. And so to go through of, of mental health challenges, so to go through physical health challenges felt, you know, like an, another layer. But I, I really, you know, I've met so many people now that have had situations so much harder than what we've dealt with. Um, that I, I, I really do think that my husband's disease kind of woke us up in life. We were kind of sleepwalking and taking things for granted, and while I will never be grateful for Charlie's disease and what he has, I am grateful for the way that it woke us up in our lives to really start asking the questions. How do we want to live? Who do we want to be, you know, spending our time with? What should we be doing? We only have so many years left possibly, you know, how do we want to make it to the finish line? What are we going to say that we did that mattered in this world? So I think it really fast tracked all of those things for me of how do I want to live? What's important? And um, let's live this life right. You know, this isn't a, this isn't a dress rehearsal. We don't get a do over. So let's get this life right. Whatever. We only get one chance. Let's do it. Exactly. And I, I think more and more people are are thinking that way. Um, you know, with the last few years being so uncertain, um, 
I think people are kind of taking that moment to say, what do I want to do? Do I want to be doing what I'm doing? I think that's so true that the subtitle of the last ordinary hour is living life now that nothing will ever be the same. And I do think I was finishing that book, at, you know, in COVID and thinking what happened to us is really what happened to the entire world. I mean, the entire world got faced with this crazy disease and we do have to decide, okay, well, nothing's ever going to be the same. We're not the same. The world is not the same. So how do we want to live with this new knowledge of, of, of the way life is? I think that's true. Definitely. So what has life been like for Charlie with, you know, this disease and, you know, not necessarily having answers and what has it been like, you know, kind of being there by his side and, you know, still raising four girls? Yeah, well, so I think I kind of now I can laugh, right? I couldn't have laughed in 2013. Um, but now I can say, gosh, you know, what 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 a two type A control freak type people get, but a disease that is completely and totally uncontrollable. There is there's nothing you can do. I mean, believe me, I spent probably the first three years on Google every night going, okay, surely there's a doctor somewhere who's got the answers to this. And we just haven't run across them yet. And not only did Charlie have a weird disease, but he was one of only 10 males known to be living with it at the time, which was really insane. You know, he it's a disease that mold, mostly affects women um, after pregnancy who've had their first child. And so 40 year old women normally get you know, these type of heart attacks, these SCAD heart attacks, SCAD events. And so it just really all felt, um, you know, a little bit, why is this happening? So I, and I think for Charlie very much so, I think his original um, reaction was just to blow forward and pretend it didn't happen. He went back to work and just started saying that, you know, I lived, yay, and move on. But there were subsequently a lot of different health challenges over the years, and he ended up having open heart surgery and um, we really did, you know, four years in have to decide, okay, well, you could either, um, you know, keep pretending this is not happening, or we can try and take charge of what it is we're, we're going to do with the rest of our, our lives. So part of that did, he took early retirement. Um, we started spending, uh, we always had a goal in our life that we wanted, um, to spend time in the West. So we spend a lot of time in Wyoming now, um, splitting time between Charlotte and Wyoming, um, spending a lot more time with our four daughters. And now we have one grandson and another, um, hopefully another one on the way. Um, and so I think we've, we've reprioritized, um, a lot of things. I, I think, um, spending a lot more time on our bucket list than on our to-do list has probably been the, the biggest shift. Um, we, yes, you do have, you will always have to do laundry and feed the dog. And, you know, all of those things do have to happen, but being a little more conscious each year of saying, Hey, what are some things that we, we said we wanted to do and, and let's put them on the calendar this year so that we're not, um, you know, getting to the end of the year. And again, you know, have letting things slide that we thought said were important and that we were going to commit to. So anyone listening, I think that's, I think we all spend way too much time on the to-do list and not enough time on the bucket list. And the bucket list can look from anything from, you know, discovering the wonder in your world right around you um, to, you know, big adventures. If you're a traveler and want to go to Argentina, we'll get it on the list and, and start knocking them off. See, whatever it is that's important to you in this life, um, start, start checking it off. 
Yeah. Now I'm curious why Wyoming? I think, you know, it's funny that we, I grew up in El Paso, Texas. He grew up in New York, but we both, when we met, um, we, we had a love of, of the West and Western States. And so, um, even when our girls were little, we used to take vacations to the national parks out there every summer, or we would go to different dude ranches. We would ride horses. We would pretend cowboy. I don't know. And, um, and there was something about that, you know, the, the Wyoming, the wide open spaces, you know, the state of Wyoming only has 500,000 residents for the entire state. There's not many people and a preponderance of national parks and beautiful places, the Grand Tetons in, in particular. So there's something about that place that really called and spoke to both of us. And so that, that was a bucket list thing for us that we would start spending more time out there and so we, we rented and then eventually ended up um, buying a place there. So. Great. Well, I mean, you know, talking about bucket lists and, and kind of the living the life you want to live, I think is, is, is great to hear. And, you know, you've, you've got the time. So does the future still feel very uncertain with his disease? Well, it does in that um, there's still no cure right? There's, there's no cure. There's a little more research. Um, there is a great organization called SCAT Alliance that we've um, become a part of. We've um, started to get to know doctors in the disease and we help um, host a conference here in Charlotte a couple weeks ago where we had doctors from 22 institutions from all over the United States, Canada, and Australia that were gathered here by this um, amazing cardiologist named Dr. Esther Kim. Um, so we've that's one way we've tried to, you know, dig into it is try and help the research and the cause and the disease. But knowing that it it probably will not be solved in the lifetime for Charlie, right? Like whenever his, it's it's probably going to be a, a 10 or, or 20 year fix. But we do have four daughters and, you know, possibly other, you know, kids, grandkids who might be, you know, susceptible to this disease. So that research phase has been important. Um, in terms of, does it still feel, um, what was the word you used? How does it, does, I don't know if it feels, it's not as scary as it was. I think for me, because I've tried to come to terms with death in general. Right. And I think that's what a lot of the reading and the studying, um, other, other theologians and authors and trying to come to an understanding about death. Um, and I think the, the big question was what is worse than death, right? I mean, it's everyone's greatest fear. I don't, I don't want to die. I don't want to die yet. We all come to this life knowing that we're going to die, right? It, the day you were born, it, now your chances that you're going to die, just the fact that we're here. And so kind of wrestling for several years was what is worse than death. And I, I think there actually is an answer to that question. And, uh, and the answer is what's worse than death is living as if you already are. And I think a lot of us do that. I think a lot of us, you know, take for granted that we're here. We don't imagine that every day is a gift. We, we lose the wonder that we're here with people we love in just a very finite amount of time. So I think that has helped, um, knowing that I, I have a, a little bit of peace, not only with my own death, but 
Charlie's when it should come. We kind of joke now he spent so much time worrying about his death. I'll probably get hit by a bus and die first. I don't know. But um, yeah, we've spent a lot of time worrying about, about his, but at the same time, even if he has a heart attack um, tomorrow, we've, we've had 10 years that we were never going to have, right? He, he, he's um, lived so many more years than they thought he would um, 10 years ago and kind of, I don't know, cheated death is not the right word. He's, he's been very lucky three different times now. And so I don't think when, and if that happens, I, I will have anything other than the gratitude for the graduations he got to go to in the last 10 years for the two daughters. He got to walk down the aisle for the grandson. He's, he's gotten to meet. I mean, all of that, I've, I've got to just say, boy, what a blessing that we had the last 10 years. And so I don't think, um, I think 10 years ago, I would have been incredibly bitter to wake up and, and say, how did that all happen? We didn't have enough time. Well, we can't say that now, right? We, we've gotten all this time and we've had all this warning and all these chances to do all the things that we want to do. So now it's just on us if we don't, you know, take advantage of it. So when I write and speak on, on this particular topic, that's what I try to, to impress upon um, people that I'm speaking with is I hope it doesn't take a heart attack or a rare disease to wake you up to the wonder of your own life, that, that each one of us, we, we have this amazing chance. So don't waste it. Don't, don't take it for granted. Get, get going on, on whatever it is um, that you are meant to do in this world. Yes, that is definitely some good advice. Now, is the research for this disease kind of getting anywhere to the point where, you know, there might be a chance for your daughters to be able to get tested to see if they might have this in their genes? Yes. I mean, that was the amazing thing is that just 10 years ago, there was not much. And then this conference a couple of weeks ago, they've actually identified a gene that is possibly you know, the one that they can go looking for, um, for SCAD. So that in itself was huge news. Um, they're working on some different protocols. There was a woman there who is, um, like growing artificial arteries to, to test and do things with. So, I mean, there was, and so that gave me so much hope, Sarah, because just in the last five years, what's happened. So I think you fast forward five years or yeah, it does feel solvable in 10 years. Whereas, you know, when, when I was first hearing about this in an ICU ward, you know, in 2013, it felt hopeless. I mean, it, everyone just was kind of throwing up their hands saying, yeah, we, we don't know. This is a really strange one. And they called it a black swan event that it was so rare that they just had no idea, you know? So yes, it just feels very hopeful now that, that something might, um, you know, possibly help Charlie, but for sure help future generations. So this feels good. It, that's, you know, the wonder of science, right? Thanks. Thank goodness for all the doctors who that is their call in this life to be researchers and to help. And, uh, so many different doctors who have helped in, in Charlie's life and our life. Um, it, you know, grateful for them every day. Mm -hmm, definitely. Now, you've said it in a couple of different ways, but, you know, just from 10 years ago, your life is very different from even, say, 20 years ago. So what has it been like kind of having 
these different careers and different life paths, you know, could you ever have seen yourself where you are today? No, I, I, you know, this is, it's so funny because I do think, you know, you work at a college, right? So you, you see college kids who are probably, they're in this very like, oh, I've, I've chosen to go to this high school so that I could get this degree so that I could, you know, do well and get into this college and I'm going to choose my major and this is going to be my life. And, you know, I think when we're young, we fool ourselves believing that we have these life plans and that we're in charge. And um, I just think that's so not the case that things will, you know, knock us off of our life plans. And I, I never could have seen any of this coming. I didn't, I really didn't plan to, to work on housing or homelessness. I certainly didn't plan to be a writer or an author. And now I'll have four books by next year. I 100% never planned to be a speaker um, or to raise money. Both of those things terrify me. And I still sometimes get sweaty about both of them. Um, so, so no, none of this felt like my, my plan, but it, it absolutely feels like today that I'm, I'm absolutely walking my path. I am, I'm doing exactly what I was meant to do. Um, but I, it was not really of, of my choosing or making, but it does feel 100% authentic to, to what I want to say at the end of the day mattered to me. And, and I live that out particularly my mother's story, growing up in a home with a mother who was bipolar. And I really felt like, oh, there's nothing I, I can do for this. I, I really would like to help her and there's nothing I can do. And then fast forward 45 years and I helped, you know, I was standing in a building that will, you know, someday, well, it does now, it helps over 500 clients a year. But, you know, this was the type of place I always wanted when I was a child that I wished we could have felt for my mother. And that felt so full circle that day when we were opening Hopeway to say, wow, I never saw that coming. Mental health felt like a very hopeless thing in my life, but it also was imprinted on me in a way that once I could be part of an effort to change homelessness, I mean, to change mental health in Charlotte, I knew I was going to do it. I knew that's why my story was the way it was so that I would know that this mattered and know that we could do something about it. So, oh no, none of, none of that was my choosing or my planning, but I'm grateful that, that it is my story, you know, and I have no idea what's going to, what becomes next. I don't know what the next whisper will be or, or where, what will be around the corner, but it, it does feel, um, talking and teaching women and leading retreats and workshops and helping other people find their path does feel like what I'm meant to be doing right now. And it, it sounds definitely like you have found these great pockets of places to be and to help. So when you were say late teens, early twenties, what was your plan for the future? Yeah. What was my plan? Okay. Well, um, when I was young, I was going to be a veterinarian, so that didn't work out and it did not end up helping animals. When I went to college, uh, my, my plan was that I was going to go to law school and I was going to be a lawyer. My father was a lawyer. So I went to college thinking I was going to be a lawyer. And as I was waiting to go to law school, I needed to get an undergrad degree and, um, the advertising school and design, they look like they were having a lot of fun over there. So I ended up going over there and getting a more advertising and marketing degree. 
And that's what I graduated with. And that's what I did for 20 years um, and never went to law school. So I spent a good chunk of my 20s and 30s advertising, marketing, graphic design. And it was entertaining. I, I loved the creativity of it. I could, um, you know, have clients and do the work and still raise four daughters. But I just knew at my core that I was in the wrong place. Like I, and I, I started getting closer to my path when I started doing advertising marketing for nonprofits. And I started doing a lot of it. I started to be kind of a subspecialty of my um, design firm is that I would do um, logos and brochures um, for nonprofits who were, you know, trying to, you know, had very missional work. And I just knew that every time I left a meeting with one of those executive directors who was working on something, I left thinking, wow, I wish I had their job and not mine. And I would be so happy and fulfilled when I was sitting in the room and helping them design their logo and what they were going to say and creating their message. And the minute that project was over, I'd be a little deflated because I would feel like, oh, now I'm I'm back to doing bank brochures again. So I, I was paying attention to that idea that, hmm, this is where I feel most alive. I feel really alive when I'm I'm helping on something. And it just took me, a, you know, into my early 40s to, to, I guess, have the courage to make the leap to say, well, I'm going to I'm going to do this all the time because this this is what brings me alive. I, I love there's a quote by Howard Thurman. And he says, don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive, because that's what the world needs is people who've come alive. So I think I was finding that slowly, but surely through motherhood, through an early career, I was finding what made me come alive. And I try to pay attention to that even now. You know, what makes me come alive is to help pe people find their path. I need to pay attention to that and, and do more of it. Yes. And it sounds like you definitely, you know, have found the time to hear those whispers. Now, it sounds like you don't have any formal training in, you know, authoring a book. So what was... I don't. Yeah. Another thing, I tend to do a lot of things where I have no formal training and qualified. So I guess I would tell listeners that too, is I didn't write. Um, I was afraid to write a book because I didn't have an MFA. And I thought, oh, well, you know, I'm not qualified to write a book. What what makes me think I can be an author, but I do believe that anyone can learn anything if it's important to you. So while I didn't go get back and get a formal MFA in creative writing, there was just, I couldn't find a low residency program that worked for me. I did take a ton of classes. I took them in the community college. I took them at the local college. I did, um, I went places to take writers classes. And I think that's probably because the, I had done the first draft of my first book over a year, um, you know, just writing in pockets of time at night or um, in the morning or whatever. And I let Charlie read it. And he said, well, honey, it's not a page turner. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, well, ouch, that hurt, right? For, for like, um, but it was so true. He was right. And I was getting, I had a, I had a really good story and it was lost in a bad book. And so I had to learn well, of course, you don't just sit down and write a good book the first time because you don't know what you're doing. So, you know, go take the writing classes and learn what, you know, how you write the arc of a book. What's the storyline? Where are you losing the story? How do you make it better? So it actually took six years to write that first book. Um, and then I learned a lot about the publishing process as well. My second book took about three years. 
this one that's coming out next year, I guess in total will have been about three years. So I'm cutting it about half the time. I, I'm cutting it down, but it's still, it takes a long time to write and publish a book. Um, and it, and it takes work to learn and understand it. So, um, yeah, but I did not feel qualified and I, I had to work at it. Definitely. And what was the publishing experience like for you? Well, that um, I learned probably what a lot of people, if anyone's listening and trying to write a book, it is, I, I, I believed originally that you just have to write a good book and then you get discovered and then you go on Good Morning America and, and you sell 10,000 books and end up on the New York Times bestseller list. And that's not what happens. <laughs> you, you spend a lot of time writing a book and then you find out that um, finding a publisher and an agent is really, really hard. Um, so the, when I was first trying to publish The 100 Story Home, um, I couldn't get an agent and I couldn't get a publisher, but I thought, well, I've spent six years writing this book. So I, I started taking all the classes in publishing and independent publishing and understanding it. So I, I originally published that book myself. I independently published it. Um, and it, it did well. People just started handing it to other people. It won a national award. And, um, I ended up getting an agent in a book deal after that, um, but I've subsequently, I have um, independently published my children's book and other things. I've, I've gone back and forth because um, the publishing world is a tricky matrix. You know, there's a lot of that goes into it. Platform is really important. You're supposed to have 50,000 Instagram followers or, you know, already be famous to, to get books out in the world. Um, so it, that's been its own animal to try and figure out and wrestle. Um, I, I teach publishing classes now trying to help people understand, um, you know, it doesn't be just because you can't get a publishing contract does not mean you have a bad book. Um, you know, try to find the, the writers, the readers who need to hear your story. And that may or may not be through a big five publisher um, or a New York Times bestseller, but you will find readers who need your message and the story you need to hear. Yes. Now, before I start to wrap things up, is there anything else you would like to share with the listeners today? No, I just appreciate the chance to talk with you, Sarah, to get to get to know you. Thanks for what you're doing here. It sounds like you had a whisper in the pandemic to start a podcast and you've spent two and a half, almost three years doing it. So congratulations to you on all the conversations you've had and all the people you've met along the way. Who knows how that'll change your path? Thank you. Now, at the end of all my episodes, I do ask my guests random questions to keep it a little different. So my question for you today is, you know, athleticism aside, what sport would you like to compete in if you were in the Olympics? Oh, what sport would I like to? I think um, I would love uh, track and field, like maybe to win the hurdles. Yeah. Cause I just think, uh, that speed and agility. And, um, I think it's pretty amazing, uh, sport. All right. That brings this episode to a close. So of course I'll be leaving some great links for Kathy in the description. So her website will be there if you'd like to check out to see what she's doing and all of her books. Her Instagram will be there if you'd like to, you know, support her Instagram follower account and subscribe. You can go do that. 
And if you're interested in the women's retreats, writing and publishing classes that Kathy was talking about, her website for that will be there as well. And of course, if you would like to connect with the podcast, our website is in the description as always. That brings you to all of our past episodes, all past guest resources and social media and all of that. And if you'd like to be a guest on the show, my email is in the description, so feel free to reach out to me. And of course, if you would like to follow us on social media, we are on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. That support is always appreciated. And if you'd like to support the podcast monetarily, there is a link to do that as well. So thank you so much, Kathy, for spending time with me today and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time. Bye. Thanks, Sarah.